Now, that was a piece of music by David Haas. And now we are going to listen to a conversation that I had with my colleagues at the JSUT Institute. That, that will be Frank Tyson and Iswamo Kupali. Good morning. And this morning we'll be talking to Frank Tyson and Iswamo Kapalu. So they will be chatting to us on what it means to be youth in South Africa today. Guys, welcome to Radio Veritas. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I will start with you, Isamo. What does it mean to you to be young and uh, to be youth in South Africa today? Oh, it's a tough question. Uh, right off the bat, what does it mean to be a youth? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I know the implications of being young. is anxiety, for one, is never knowing which way the country is going. And I think that's one of the key feelings. And also, I think there's like a thing where we feel like we inherited a big, bad country and it hasn't been fixed and it looks like it's not going to be fixed by the time it's passed on to us. So got a job now. So that's what it means. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. I quite feel like that as well. So to you, our friend, what I, does it mean? I definitely agree with the solo. Hmm. Our inheritance has been quite fraught. When you consider the horrible stuff left over from apartheid and colonialism in general, I suppose, we have a lot of work to do still. True. True. And uh, so, okay. Yesterday I was listening to news and uh, I come across a story where we're talking about the recession that will be happening here in South Africa in about three, uh, 30 years to come. So how do you guys feel about that as youth today? Um, how do I feel about the recession? Yeah. I feel like it's unfair, for one, is because I haven't done anything to make it happen. In fact, I've worked my hardest to keep the country's economy afloat and yet people who aren't young and won't have to be around for the implications mm. are causing the economy to tank and that's not fair. Yeah, that's true. I feel myself, I feel angry about it because I, I feel like we got where we are today because of uh, the things that our leaders, should I say, our president has done. And it doesn't seem to me that the president realizes what is what is done. And uh, he's leaving us with all these things, us being the future. So as you're saying, that we're inheriting these things that we didn't have a part of it, a part in, in the making of it. So now we're looking at the future, where our future looked to be doomed, to be ruined and stuff like that. It's all in the leadership. And uh, what can we do about it? Frank, what can I, we do I, about I, that? I agree with you. It's incredibly frustrating. I think we're all angry with our leadership, mm. especially because as a country, we have the most incredible amounts of human capital, amazing amounts of resources. There is absolutely no reason other than bad government choices. I mean, mm -hmm. going back to many years ago, that's you know, the only thing we can really blame. Mm. And we weren't part of that. And do you guys think that we as youth, do we still have that strong voice that youth had very big then? Do you think if we were to talk and to say things right now, they will happen? Considering we have done, I mean, youth has taken part in uh, so many matches that had happened not so long ago, but nothing has changed. What is it that we can do that can change? Is there anything else we can do? I think one of the problems is that um, in terms of youth in South Africa, we are largely politically unrepresented. Most youth organizations are youth 
formations of existing mother bodies. You've got an ANC Youth League, a student command of this, a student organization of that. But there's no platform for just youth where we can ventilate our issues. And I think that would be a good first step is to genuinely have a go at organizing politically, find leaders amongst ourselves, Mm. people who will be around when the decisions that are made today have some impact. So I think that's a good place to start. And I think one of the encouraging things about the last couple of years is, although it's been turmoil on the university campuses, there seems to be a coming together of sorts of people from different backgrounds Mm. who advocate issues that don't even impact them directly, but they realize that there's an inherent injustice in the system itself. So, yeah. And they're coming together with a sense of solidarity in their shared youth Mm. as opposed to lack of solidarity because of like inherently different backgrounds and cultures. And uh, another thing, do you feel like you are represented when it comes to parliament? Are your issues and your ideas being heard out there? I don't think we would have had protests if that was the case. Yeah, because the reason why I'm saying that I think we only have what EFF is maybe youth mm. in the parliament and apart from that we don't have anything else Mm-mm. and are they standing in for what we are out here are they representing us i don't think so in parliament in general i suppose on on one level because south africa's issues are our issues then yeah but when is the last time you heard a seriously sustained dialogue on youth unemployment or on the fact that education is unaffordable or on the fact that the economy is just, and I'm making a down sign, which you can't see because it's radio, but yeah. Hmm. I don't think there's been any sustained effort to engage the youth on their issues or there's anyone who stands unashamedly for the youth and the youth alone. The youth's issues have to be bundled with everyone else, I think, and that's a problem, right? Agreed. Mm. And we also, as well, um, do you think uh, white privilege is still really that relevant in the way that influence uh, the youth today? I think it's incredibly relevant because most people, especially most white people, don't understand what white privilege is. They hear the words and they immediately get defensive Mm. and aggressive. So can you please tell us what white privilege is? I suppose white privilege, if I can just explain, is the kind of other side of racism. It's the necessary other side of racism, Mm. because if there is a system that is designed deliberately to oppress and marginalize a group, that system will, as converse, I suppose, it will also privilege one group above another. It's that thing where you can apply for a job and although some people some white people say it's it's harder to be a white person applying for jobs the employment rate amongst white people is still you know proportionately higher mm. the fact that you must speak english and afrikaans might as well just say don't be black if you want this job or must own own vehicle i mean mm. where your parents barely manage to make payments on their own vehicle you're not going to And it's institutional things also. And the fact that you're not represented. Google beauty, um, I think, as a challenge for anyone. If you want to understand white privilege, you will not see a single black person within the first two or three pages of Google if you Google beauty or hair 
or what it means to be young because you're not represented in public spaces. You are an other. And white privilege centers white people as the center of existence for which everything else is an other. Mm. And it's tough being an other, yeah. So they, you think they, sh they should be uh, maybe a law against it? Isn't there? I don't the know. Thing, the thing about white privilege is I, as a young white male, have been benefiting from white privilege my entire life. And it's not my fault. I didn't, you know, oppress any black people. I just happened to be born into a white middle-class family. And because of that, things have been much easier for me than they are for the average young black guy. Mm. And what people have to understand is that it doesn't matter whether or not you caused it. You are, by virtue of being, you benefit from it. And therefore, reparations need to be made in some way or another. So how can we challenge this to change? Inheritance tax. For one, that's a great idea. Mm. And the issues of uh, racism, I've seen a lot of things happening around racism and it's 2017 and do you think we should still be fighting for the things that we don't know what really happened back then isn't it time that maybe we start to move on as a nation and start getting along i mean pam how do you move on from today because racism isn't in the past racism isn't like an old thing there was but it's rude wasn't there a child just the other day who called her classmates the the k-word but yeah that wasn't the 50s that was in 2017 but you should know that racism starts at home though obviously that child had it from home yeah. and uh, being home these are old people maybe talking about how black people are and the kid obviously inherited it from home and there's your answer so i think maybe if we can start talking different things to our kids and uh, somehow we're able to change it. But then I don't think it's really necessary for us to keep going on like this. Is there any possibility well, that necessary. our... It was always a travesty. But it is reality still, as Islam says. Hmm. And the only thing we can do is all of us together have to make a conscious effort to stamp out our racist tendencies. Yeah, and in terms of... Just like, I don't think anything is fixed by burying our heads in the sand and saying, you know what, it's a long time ago. And because I think that attitude, if anything, breeds more resentment because you don't need to tell someone who's hungry today and can see a clear link between their poverty and their race and tell them that, you know, it's in the past and expect them to smile at you 20 minutes after that. And that's why I think it's important for us to have conversations like this and for like there to be bridge building efforts on both sides mm. and i think one thing that's come up talking to friends who are black like me is that people are tired of being the only ones to reach out and to forgive and never like any reparations any attempt to seek out forgiveness and to seek out healing it's always forgiveness that's just being yeah so I think th there's a resentment because of that, and that's a resentment that we have to deal with because we're in this country together. When, when you when you say there's never any effort to apologize, make reparations, that sort of thing, I think there have been for individuals, but there has never been a united movement towards making reparations for the past. Yeah. 
then how do we make it it's something that everyone can do instead of an individuality? As Iswara said earlier, an inheritance tax. Okay, I'm going to change a little bit. I want to talk about uh, violence in our community. Mm. You know, we see young people being uh, killed. We see young people being raped. We see a lot of things happening around our community. And these are youth. I struggle to understand how can we as youth be behaving like this towards each other. Mm. I mean, what happened to us? Why are we killing each other now? You know, I think for me more than anything else, it's like scary because for the longest time, the people who would do these terrible things were much older than me. Mm. And now you hear in the news, like someone is 22 and they've murdered their family or they've raped someone and they've mutilated a person. And it's scary because those people are my peers now. It's not just mm. old men that it used to be stranger danger, keep away from the men in the park. But now like those, those men are your friends. And honestly, I'm ashamed sometimes to be a man in this country because very definitely. Because mm. I'm a woman in this, in this country and I come from Soweto. A lot of the things uh, that were reported in the media, we're coming from Soweto and I must say that it's really scary coming out from the township and you see these things happening around you. I don't feel like I'm safe in my own space anymore. And this are being done to me by the people that I trust, people that are and are close to me. So I don't understand what's happening. But then how do we heal as a country? How do we get out of this? Is there any solution to this? I don't know, honestly. But I think, I don't know, but I think one of the ways, that's one of the things that's important to do is each individual needs to, each individual man needs to understand their role in the system. Mm. And it's a deconditioning process. It's about catching yourself in terrible and, you know, and violent and sexist thoughts and fixing yourself with every thought and saying, you know, that's not the way I should be thinking about this because that's harmful. It's problematic. It's violent. But also, I think there needs to be, we need to talk amongst each other. Conversations about violence against women don't need to stop when women leave the room. Mm. And I think that's, I don't know if you have a similar experience, Frank, but I don't. Very I, definitely. I think we can talk about violence all all day long when, when women are in the room, but as soon as women are gone, the conversation disappears as well. Mm. And I think it's sad because that's an important space when it's just us and, you know, no one has to pretend for anyone. Yeah. But, it's definitely hard to keep any sort of feminist conversation going with the boys. Mm. I think also there's a kind of overwhelming culture in South Africa in general of if you can get away with it, why not do it? And mm. um, everybody bribes cops. Mm. A, a recent poll of rapists in KwaZulu-Natal, when asked, they said they would almost definitely rape again. And it's it's just a little terrifying that people don't actually think about other people as human beings who matter, but have a sense of, let's do what I will enjoy as long as I can get away with it. Mm. Mm. And, uh, you know, with uh, Frank, as you're saying, that uh, someone will do this, uh, will rape someone and then being asked later and they will still do the same thing. Do you think uh, they should be maybe... Uh, the punishment that they're getting today is not enough. Do you think that the death penalty should come back 
The death again. penalty is very, very problematic. Not, not that I, I don't think rapists deserve death, but as a punishment, it just doesn't work. And far too frequently for it to be okay, people are sentenced to death, killed, and then later exonerated. Then wouldn't I want to be like, would I see someone who did the same thing and die? I, I myself, I wouldn't want to be in the same space where I'll be killed. Somehow I would try to maybe stop what I'm trying, what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And you would think that that is how it works. But Swamo will tell you now that the stats completely disagree. Yeah, um, I think from, because I was I was also interested in the topic um, a couple of years ago. So I did, I did look into it a bit. And apparently severity of punishment actually does very little to deter crime. Because the, one of the most determinative factor when it comes to whether or not someone is likely to offend or offend again mm-hmm. is whether or not they think they're going to get caught. And you can have a death penalty, but if only, what, less than 20% of rapists get convicted, your chances are, what, 80% likely you're going to get away with it. So I think one of the things that needs to, the thing that needs to improve is is policing and very definitely and catching people who do this and reporting people who do this and ensuring that people who do this are brought to justice and we need to there need to be safe spaces for people who have been raped and abused to come forward to Mm. because that that is one of the biggest reasons people think i won't be believed Mm. or my rapist will find out often Mm. i think the the entire system needs to be revamped i definitely agree with frank on that one actually where we there needs to be because we we can't keep living in a country where a woman is going to go to a police station to report the fact that she's been raped and get turned away because she's drunk that's or Mm -hmm. because the police officer thinks she's drunk or someone reports that they've been abused and they're told to go home and that's untenable. That can't keep going on. Yes. And I think safe spaces are important. We need to treat people who are victims of sexual violence and violence in general as victims and not worse than the perpetrator sometimes. Not as guilty until proven innocent, mm. which it often is. Mm. Yeah, I often have a problem when I see things happening. You know, you look um, around and uh, this person has had raped somebody and uh, they went and, and got a bail. And then it's like they get arrested today, tomorrow they're out, and then they come back and do the same thing. Then there's nothing that they, I mean, like you see them happening and you know, I'll ask myself, why are they out? Why isn't anything happening to them? Do you think there should be anything better that can be done about that as well? You see, the thing is with bail, I, I understand the legal problem with that question. And that's that, you know what, everyone, uh, whether they're accused of, you know, the most severe crimes is still technically innocent at the time they, they're at a bail hearing. Yeah, they're innocent until proven guilty. So, unfortunately. And it's funny that uh, I just, uh, this other day I was listening to news and uh, the Minister of Police, Fikilem Balula, Fikilem uh, Balula was talking about uh, uh, those who offended uh, the women, uh, the ones that have been killed, the ones that were raped. He was saying something like, uh, when they 
ask for bail. They shouldn't be given bail and uh, the punishment should be more stronger and uh, more painful than it used to be. What's your take on that? I think I always I will always have a a small difficulty with treating accused persons as convicted persons, but that's a legal thing. Where as you know, in an ideal world, where everyone who goes to trial is likely to be guilty, um, which I think a lot of the time they are, only like three percent of rape accusations are found to be false. So 97% of the time someone is accused of rape, chances are that they actually did it. So I think from one perspective, I'm always I'm always a bit uh, tentative about treating people who haven't been found guilty of a crime like criminals. But at the same time, I understand because of the dire need to fix this problem in our society that, you know what, maybe break eggs to make omelets. Okay, thank you so much, uh, guys, for coming out to talk to us. And uh, very important and uh, interesting views that you had to give to us. Mm. I really appreciate that. Well, Hopefully you, you'll be available to talk to us next time. Thanks for having us, Pam. Thank you, Pam. You're welcome. That was a conversation between uh, me and my colleagues at uh, JSET Institute, uh, um, France, uh, Fran- Frank and uh, Iswamo. And now we're going to listen to a piece of music by Bernadette Farrell, God has chosen me. So the words of that song by Bernadette Farrell, God is calling me, for me really speak into the discussion that Iswamo, Frank and Pam were having, that there's a real energy, I think, in youth that we need to harness and that that needs to be harnessed for the kingdom of God. And just at the moment, as we sit in this this very very special week, we're sitting in the week between Pentecost and the Feast of Christ the and the Feast of um, the the Trinity. We really are in a Pentecostal time. We're in a, a time of wondering about what I can do, how am I called, what is my vocational response. I think sometimes when we look at the world, it's very very easy to be overwhelmed by all that we see that looks wrong that we can, we can look at the disasters all around us, we can look at um, what's happening in the Cape at the moment, we can look at the crisis around rape and around women, we can look at the violence in our society, we can look at issues like white privilege, we can look at all of those and, and, and they can seem overwhelming. But into that, I would like to really bring again that idea that Pope Francis offered a while ago in one of his homilies where he said every crisis for Christians is a moment of opportunity to heed the call of the Holy Spirit and to see how am I called to respond. And that for me is a a very strong message that comes out of the church. That if we think about our, our, our earthly experience, if we think about the meaning and purpose of our lives, as being success, as being getting on in life, as as being living um, a satisfying life, then things look very frightening. But if we think that this is a physical experience we are currently happening, that is th- for the good of our immortal soul, that we are that we are immortal spiritual creatures who happen to be having a physical experience, and that God invites each of us to help him in building the kingdom of God here on earth, in those words of, of the Our Father, that we need to stop and to ponder, what is it that the Lord is inviting me to do? 
how is the Holy Spirit inspiring me today? Then the picture kind of changes. There is something different at work. And so as we come to the end of today's show, that is really the challenge I would like to leave you with. To imagine yourself again, to imagine yourself being touched by the Trinity, being invited by the Trinity to contemplate the world and to see what is it that God desires of me and for me. What does God invite me to do for God in the world? For what unique purpose was I created and born? That's really the crux of it, isn't it? And so with that in mind, I invite you to listen to the the beautiful music of Marconi to Gabriel's oboe. And as you listen, one way perhaps of thinking about what is my meaning and purpose is to ask yourself these two questions. How am I uniquely created by God to give love? How am I uniquely created by God to give love? That's the one question. And the other question is like it. And it it might even throw some insight on the first question. And that is, how am I uniquely created by God to receive love? How am I uniquely created by God to receive love? watch the news, as you engage with your friends, as you meet people, as you talk to people, as you look at the world, I invite you to let those two questions resonate in your heart, in each situation, to ask yourself, how am I uniquely created by God to give and receive love, and then to live from that response authentically. So as we come to the end of today, I want to thank Kenny very much for managing the desk for us. I want to thank Pamela, who has done a whole lot of background work that you haven't seen, but also some that you've listened to this morning. And to say farewell to you and ask you to pray for us as we pray for you. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.